You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. And what drew me to our conversation topic today was a major New York Times story by Adam Liptak, the paper's Supreme Court correspondent, a story not primarily about my guest today, David Garland, Vanderbilt professor of law and professor of sociology at New York University, and about his truly compelling new Harvard University press study of capital punishment in America. It's titled Peculiar Institution, America's Death Penalty in an Age of Abolition. Rather, the Adam Liptak story was about the quite favorable and also self-revealing New York Review of Books comments on Peculiar Institution by retired United States Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. And Justice Stevens ends his piece by noting, quote, Two years ago, I wrote that the death penalty represents the pointless and needless extinction of life with only marginal contributions to any discernible social or public purposes. Well, now, Justice Stevens writes, Professor Garland identifies arguably relevant purposes without expressly drawing the conclusion that I think they dictate. Perhaps he will tell us his real position in his next installment which I look forward to reading when and if it arrives. In the meantime, I commend Peculiar Institution to participants in the political process. So that I would begin our program today by asking my guest just why he takes such pains to note that, quote, the aim of this book is not to challenge the legitimacy of American capital punishment or to show the death penalty being botched unfairly imposed, or unjustly administered. After all, hasn't he himself noted that, and again I quote, occasionally someone will ask if peculiar institution isn't the name that Southerners used to give to the institution of racialized slavery, which Kenneth Stamp memorably described in his classic book of that name. And I can testify that when the late great historian Ken Stamp was my teacher 60 years ago and more at Berkeley, he had no problem pressing judgment or passing judgment on that peculiar institution. Why do you? I don't have a problem as a citizen deciding where I stand on the death penalty, but the question I'm asking as a sociologist is really a rather different one. Basically, I think the problem in this country is that we talk about the death penalty as an abstract moral issue. Are you for the death penalty? Yes or no? When, in fact, the real policy question for Americans in this country is, given the death penalty that the Constitution now allows, and given the way it's actually practiced, how do we feel about persisting with this? And the whole purpose of my book is to try and describe First of all, the practice of the death penalty as it actually exists, and to explain how it got to be that way in the parts of America where it still is. And I think that the the job of the sociologist and the historian is to present that information and to analyze the institution, and then the citizen's perfectly capable of making up his his or her own mind. Citizen, and I ask you as a citizen, Mm -hmm. have you 
made up your mind? I, I would say that it's very hard to uh, claim that there's a good moral basis for the death penalty in the USA as currently administered. I would say that, that, that it's conceivable, it's, it's a, a plausible argument that people might make that under certain circumstances and certain kinds of nations, at certain periods of the development, the death penalty plays a role in upholding the state. The state couldn't perhaps persist without it or might even be one of the, the only effective mechanisms of controlling crime. Uh, I'm thinking of, of nations where they don't have established police and prisons, where law and order is not enforceable by the, the means that we use. None of these circumstances apply today in the USA. So um, I, I, would, I would say that the, the moral philosophy that explains and justifies a death penalty that's basically used for political purposes political with a small p, partisan uh, party purposes, and for cultural entertainment for large numbers of people who engage with the death penalty as a drama, that moral philosophy is yet to be invented. What function does it perform here and now? So the, the, the death penalty where it exists, remember the death penalty is a minority pursuit in fact. There's only about a dozen states typically execute the death sentence, even if uh, 35 of them still have it. The, the, the functions it performs are various. It doesn't, I would say, perform a function for the society as a whole. That's how sociologists often think of functions of institutions. I'd say the death penalty has no large-scale societal function. We could certainly do without it. Most of the time, we do without it. There are 14,000 homicides last year, exactly 52 executions. This is not a penalty that's being used to deal with homicide. So the question is, if it's not being used for society as a whole, who's using the death penalty and how is it working for them? And here there are a number of answers. The most morally serious of them, I would say, are jurors and victims of crime, uh, victims of murder, the family members of, of the deceased, who regard the death penalty as the appropriate retribution, the appropriate punishment for heinous criminal offences. Aggravated murder being the only one for which it's really available. And, and one can understand using the death penalty to, to make a statement of that kind and to express appropriate punishment. However, that particular use is thwarted in practice because even when a death sentence is imposed, typically it will be litigated and appealed and, and habeas reviewed uh, for decades thereafter. Two-thirds of these cases will be overturned and only a minority of people will eventually be sentenced to death and then executed, and then an average of 14 years later. So I would say that the retributive purpose that some people can seriously hold to as a, moral, a morally respectable undertaking is a thwarted one. The other uses are much less morally serious. So politicians use the death penalty as a, as a gesture to suggest that they are crowd-pleasing and uh, tough on crime, even if they know, as most of them do, the death penalty will never be enforced and in any case doesn't begin to touch the, the vast majority of crimes in this country. Not a, trivial, a frivolous reason. Uh, it's not a frivolous... I would, I would say it's a disingenuous reason, in fact. Um, if, a, if a politician knows... For example, in New York State, when the death penalty was introduced in 1995, after 18 years of, of attempting to introduce the death penalty but having a governor, uh, two, two governors in sequence, who always vetoed the legislation, the New York State Assembly passed... Um, the new capital punishment law. But I would say it was apparent to many of the legislators at the time that it was a law that would be on the books, that may result in death sentences being passed, 
but that no one be, would be executed in this state. And that's exactly what happened. And 10 years later, the, the, the Court of Appeals, the highest court in the state, invalidated the, 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 the punishment. So uh, death sentences, a de death penalty act are often introduced as a gesture that doesn't in the end result in action in terms of, of deterrence, crime control, or even retribution. Other people who use the death penalty include prosecutors who uh, typically are undertaking it for a number of reasons, partly because it advantages them in terms of pursuing a murder case. If you can death qualify a jury, which means when a capital charge is being brought, the jury in the, the, the capital trial has to uh, be selected or, or can be selected and is selected on the basis of jurors who are comfortable imposing sentences of death and excluding jurors who've got an in-principle objection to capital punishment. The effect of that, of course, is to exclude African-Americans and, and women, many of whom hold these views, um, and make the death penalty, death-qualified jury, rather more pro-prosecution and pro-conviction. So prosecutors can get some advantage there. They're also politicians, in a way, that they're often elected, they're often run for a political office thereafter. And I think bringing a high-profile capital punishment case is often responsive to community sentiment and headline generating. So that prosecutors too can benefit from the death penalty uh, being available. And finally, one has to say that the, uh, the media, uh, I would say, benefit from the existence of the death penalty in this kind of way. That in the USA, in the, the late 20th, early 21st century, the sentence of imprisonment and the sentence of very lengthy terms of imprisonment is utilized routinely in a way that no other country in the world uses it. In other words, if a serious offender is convicted and is given a lengthy sentence of imprisonment, there is no story. On the other hand, if there's a possibility they might have a death sentence imposed, if there's a possibility that thereafter they might be executed, suddenly there's a drama, suddenly there's a suspense, suddenly it's a life and death matter. And I think that the media respond to that story and that drama, and I think that their readers do too. Let me ask, though, I have no doubt in my own mind that you're quite correct with what you say about the media, but do we know for a fact that media people, uh, in terms of policy, in terms of editorial policy, will look at the death penalty in the same way? Well, one, one thing's for sure, the death penalty is always a controversial issue. It's always an issue on which sides are taken, and it's an issue that can be engaged with with seriousness in an informed way, or in a sensational, prurient way. And the media in this country, uh, and I mean different uh, kinds of newspapers, different positions in the market, different regional newspapers, different loca local community responsiveness by editors, all lead to all the complete variation of positions for and against serious and uh, thoughtful as opposed to sensational and, and merely headline grabbing. So the, the, the media is as varied and differentiated as our journalists with respect to the death penalty as is the American population itself. Well, it's so interesting. In Peculiar Institution, you do make the point that we as outliers, we as very peculiar in the Western world at least in terms of our uh, attitudes toward uh, capital punishment, that in fact in other countries, the abolition of capital punishment has come from the top down. Right. What does that tell us about what we at the bottom are like in right. this country? What's, where's the bloodlust 
come from? Well, you know, it tells us something that's common across most nations uh, at most times, including today, which is this, that when the public are asked about aggravated, heinous murderers, and, and the question is, how should they be treated? What's the proper punishment? The death penalty, which is a, an ancient, traditional, wide-ranging punishment, that, well, a punishment that up until 200 years ago was a cultural universal. Every single nation on the earth had it. And indeed, up until about 40 or 50 years ago, most nations still used it to a degree. So when the public are asked, what do you think is the right punishment? The death penalty comes immediately to mind. So the American public, which is a majority in favor of the death penalty, uh, 60 or 70, sometimes even 80% of people respond that way in public opinion polls. The American public is no different in that respect than the publics of most of the European nations, Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, all of whom when asked show also a majority support for the death penalty. But we need to pause about that and say this. When we talk about public opinion, we really mean an answer to a single question posed over the telephone or by an interviewer, um, along with dozens of other questions about other topics. And it's very easy to say, yes, I'm in favor of the death penalty. But of course, again, that's rather an abstraction. People aren't being asked, are you in favor of the death penalty when you have life imprisonment without parole as an alternative, when most murderers will never be sentenced this way, where innocent people will probably be convicted and may or may not be exonerated, and where it probably will be racially discriminatory and class discriminatory in its application. Under these circumstances, my guess is that the opinion polls would show a different kind of result. If you turn from opinion polls to what people actually do, do you as a sociologist uh, find that the appeal of the prosecutor who is seeking re-election, of the local um, legislator who is seeking re-election, that their positions, pro-positions, on the, ca on the issue of capital punishment help them at the polls? Well, you know, th they, they certainly help them to be in line with the median voter and to be in line with, with uh, community opinion. And so to that degree, it's, been, uh, it's basically been a required position for candidates for election in most states most of the time in the last 20 or 30 years. One of the things that's changed recently is this. Up until the 1980s, that there were uh, two positions on the death penalty. The, the, the position of the Democratic Party, really national candidates up until Michael Dukakis, I would say, um, often was a position that had questions about the death penalty and was opposed to the death penalty. And this, the same was true in, in gubernatorial elections and in elections in state uh, assemblies and so on. Under these circumstances, it was hugely advantageous for the candidate who lined up his or her opinions with the majority for the death penalty, because it was an election issue that divided the parties. That ceased being true in the 1980s. Basically, the, the, the Democratic Party at the national level, particularly with Bill Clinton, who was uh, notably in favor of the death penalty, although in his first term as governor in Arkansas, he'd been opposed to it, actually. But he, he learned from his mistakes, and when he was... His political mistakes. His political mistakes. He was first defeated in Arkansas for governor when he re ran again, and then when he was re-elected a subsequent time, he undertook that he wouldn't in future be opposed to the death penalty. And, and indeed, when he was running for presidential office later in the 1990s, he interrupted his uh, primary campaign to return to Arkansas, where he was then governor, and to preside over, over an, an execution there. So at that time, basically what happened is that the, the death penalty was sort of taken off the table electorally. 
it was no longer something that divided the parties and doesn't divide many of the candidates. You, you, you find that even, and this is a kind of uh, a political peculiarity, you find that even liberal Democrats, someone like John Kerry, for example, will say that they're for the death penalty. And then you ask, really? And they say, yes, but only for terrorists. You know, but it doesn't work for terrorism. But I'm for the death penalty. So it's really a kind of position taking, I think, often at odds with their own personal preferences that has been deemed necessary because a majority of the, the public up until quite recently were fervently for it. it. This was particularly true in the 1990s and the 1980s when homicide rates were increasing mm -hmm. and people were very concerned about out-of-control crime. I would say that all of that's less true now. And the reason for that is, first of all, homicide rates have been decreasing in this country quite markedly for much of the last 10 or 15 years. Homicide rates in the city, for example, are about a quarter of what they were in 1990. So for many uh, citizens, for many members of the public, the, the question about crime and especially homicide and murder is no longer so urgent. And the sense that one needs the worst kind of punishments to either to contain this or perhaps even just to retaliate against this, that's no longer quite so prominent as it was 10 or 15 years ago. And one sees this, that the death penalty, the number of sentences being passed is declining. The number of executions is declining. And actually, there are a number of states, including New Jersey in 2007 and New Mexico in 2009, that have actually taken the steps of abolishing the death penalty. Because even though a majority of the public there still say they support it, most of the, uh, the, the, the governing authorities, most of the, the representatives know that actually it's an expensive non-event, that they have capital punishment in New Jersey, they had it, they had it in New Mexico, but actually, despite the great expense and the great trouble and the great time, no one was being executed. So rather than ex uh, waste scarce taxpayers' resources, they abolished it. And our high court, what do you see as happening there? Well, the, the, the Supreme Court's really um, not likely to entertain any systematic challenge to the death penalty anytime soon. That there are questions really of, um, of a technical character, for example, the lethal injection, is it conceivably being administered in a way that endangers um, that the individual or at least runs the risk of causing pain? for the individual, and, and there's been some... Death is all right, but pain isn't. De de death is acceptable, but humane, civilized death is the kind that's preferred. But what I would say is this about the Supreme Court. Although that currently the, the court is not likely to um, over, overturn the death penalty, in fact, some of the, the justices have indicated that even were someone to be shown to have been innocent and executed, that wouldn't cause them to rethink the constitutionality of the death penalty. But I think that all of that changes if you can imagine a situation 10 or 15 or even 20 years from now when a number of states, remember in this country we have 35 states that have capital punishment on the books. But most of them, especially the ones outside the South, don't actually use it in a serious way. They don't execute the individuals to whom they sentence to death. Um, and you could imagine many of these northern states Midwestern states deciding that the game's not worth the candle and doing what New Jersey and New Mexico have done and abolishing their death penalty, which, after all, was only a symbolic death penalty anyway. Were that the case, and if the magic number of 25 or 26 states that had abolished were to be in the background, I think at that stage the Supreme Court might well look at the death penalty 
were a new case to come up to challenge it and say, look, this is a declining social phenomenon. The emergent national consensus is against the death penalty. And given its problematic character, the sort of problems that Justice Stevens was alluding to, then perhaps it's become unconstitutional and the time has come to say so. That, that's a scenario one can imagine. Would the unusual nature of actual application of the punishment play a role in the court's decision, do you think? It really does. I mean, the, the, the fact that the death penalty has long since in this country ceased to be a routine punishment for crime and instead become a very unusual and a very rare penalty that's imposed on a group of offenders who couldn't be predicted in advance. So, for example, last year there were 14,000 homicides and exactly 106 death sentences. So the vast majority of murderers are never sentenced to death. And the ones who are, the unlucky 106, they perhaps the plan was, perhaps the design that Justice Stevens talked about way back in 1976 was to focus only on the worst of the worst and ensure that a, a procedurally proper death penalty was administered and targeted on that small group. But actually, the way that the, the death sentence process works in localities and different counties and different parts of the country, uh, responding to unpopular criminals with juries who decide the death sentence is required there, we have no way of being assured that only the worst of the worst. Mostly it's the most unpopular defendants or the ones who are least well defended at trial who end up being sentenced to death. And that, that kind of arrangement doesn't seem to be the one that the court wish to uphold. In particular, the uh, level of defense, the quality of defense, has that entered into the court's consideration? Well, actually it has. One, one of the big problems in this country is that the, the capital trial is a very complex two-stage undertaking. First of all, there's the question of guilt or innocence. Is the, is the, is the jury persuaded that the, uh, the defendant actually did murder uh, the, the, the deceased? But then there's a whole other trial that follows on called the penalty phase. Mm -hmm. And the question there is, does the convicted murderer deserve to be sentenced to death or not? And that's a question where the jury is invited to take into account all sorts of circumstances that aggravate the crime or mitigate the, 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 the guilt and mitigate the character of the, the defendant. Now, to put on a proper death penalty defense with proper mitigation evidence, should it be available, is really a large-scale expert undertaking. It required lots of inquiries into the, 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 the offender's background, social circumstances, psychology, brain patterns, the whole, the whole panoply of possible mitigation. Most trial counsel lack the funding to do this. Many of them also lack the expertise. One of the things that happens in a, in a death penalty trial is you have to be prepared for a 10 or 12 or 20-year post-conviction process where what happened in the trial is then reviewed by the courts of appeal and the federal courts. It takes real expertise as well, as well as real resources to be able to do this at the trial level. And in fact, most indigent defendants who are charged with murder um, rely on state-funded assistance of counsel at the trial. And the, the state funding for that in many of our states is very meager, uh, very um, meager and very limited. So what we find is, and this is a kind of characteristic of the USA, we don't like to spend money providing people with, as it were, welfare needs or legal assistance at the trial stage. 
But decades later, the Constitution requires that we spend huge amounts of money in the federal courts looking at curing the errors that were caused at the earlier stage. I'm so interested you, that you find that typically American. The, there, there's a real reluctance, I think, in this country to, to um, transfer taxpayer funds to the needy if the needy are regarded as undeserving. So, for example, legal aid to individuals charged with murder and individuals who face a death penalty um, case is typically provided only in a very limited way and, and historically was provided only because the Supreme Court required it to be. The, 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 the notion of funding for, taxpayer funding for the, the fancy defense of accused murderers is not something that's appealed to politicians around the country. So some states are very different from others. Some states do provide decent funding, but by and large, it's very limited. And, and the reason for that is very similar to why we don't wish as a country to have universal health care or to ensure that, that the funding of income support for the unemployed. I thought that that would be something that you would uh, take, take note of. Uh, Professor Garland, the Peculiar Institution is such a fascinating uh, book, America's Death Penalty in an Age of Abolition, but you've explained the relationship between abolition elsewhere and the nature of our own politics. Right. I appreciate mm. your joining me here today. Thank you very much. And thanks too to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, as an old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to reprise this program online or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 other Open Mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash openmind.